0: your least favorite lupine wolf rambats and i am joined by dave fonseca how's everything going
1: everything is going great man i am ready to take my buzz to another level
0: oh man as you may have heard on the pod today we're drafting songs from buzz ballads a 2005 compilation of grunge and post grunge slowish songs i'm not sure i would call any of these ballads per se but hey here we are this was released on razor and tie and it was marketed frequently on late-night TV. So let's take a quick break, and then Dave will explain why I suddenly smell sex and candy.
1: Yes,
0: okay, bookended by Live's lightning crashes and Tori Amos's cover of Smells Like Teen Spirit, Buzz Ballad's 32 songs cover one of the worst periods of radio rock. But are there any diamonds amongst the turds? That is what we've been called upon to figure out today— over the next 16 rounds, maybe maybe a bonus round, Ooh. we'll draft the best and least worst of what Buzz Ballads has to offer. But before we get down to our Balladeer business, Dave, do you have any fond memories or general affinity for this stretch of rock or these compilations that were shamelessly sold as seen on TV? Okay, so two-part answer. <laughs> part 1 literally no this, this...
1: <laughs>
0: 16 <laughs> rounds folks
1: buckle in the music on this compilation encompasses the the worst the worst time in my life which is like whenever i hear any of these songs i i immediately start smelling diesel gasoline being burned cuz it's the kind of gas that was used in school buses in the late 1990s and this is the kind of music that was played on the school bus when i was like Taking the bus to school at the age between the ages of fifteen and seventeen, um, I think.
0: A, I think a philosopher once said, "Give me few, give me fire, give me that which I like. desire." So yeah, yeah. Well, if it it's in, there's very little that I desire on this <laughs> compilation. But to the second
1: part of your question, um, do I have any fondness for the, these types of like as seen on TV album compilations? There's a couple that spring to mind. Um, do you remember Freedom Rock? Oh yeah. Um, we should drop uh let's drop the audio of the commercial for Freedom Rock in here real quick.
0: Absolutely. Hey man, is that Freedom Rock?
1: Yeah, man. we well, turn it up, man. <laughs> so I think I think Freedom Rock may have been the nail in the 60s coffin when it comes to anyone remembering it as a time of cultural significance. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the guy literally says, "Hey man, remember the good old days?" War, protest, going to jail. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like the wavy graviest motherfucker of all time. (laughs) Whose, whose like synapses were melted in, you know, during an extended sugar magnolia solo in 1967, (laughs) (laughs) struggling to like connect the dots of reality, selling you on a incense and peppermint (laughs) and strawberry alarm clock. Um, but something that I didn't realize until I did some research for it is that basically these types of compilations became very popular at this time because commercial airspace was very cheap back then. And so these uh, these record companies were just trying to like it was a, it was a good value proposition to put to, like thirty different songs on a double CD or cassette, and you could market them like all night long to to stoners, and you could probably do pretty good business
0: yeah definitely. I mean, this was kind of like a win win for these little labels such as Razor and Tie, which has a very interesting backstory. I almost think in a different pod, we should chronologically go through the razor and tie history because it's it's more interesting than you might think from uh from just a label that's hawking stuff late night on t v but
1: yeah, do you, you have know, a, like do you have like a teaser
0: of like one of the
1: interesting things you found in researching them?
0: I mean, just that uh, I believe that they started out as the 70s Preservation Society, right? Okay, okay. And they were selling stuff that way. And then later on, they became like a full-fledged label that would, would sign like hard rock, alternative rock, like heavy metal. They got out of the compilation game. Mm. And uh, I think they're still going, right? No, no, defunct in 2018, right? Okay. But they had pretty reckless All That Remains... Oh. on there so on and so forth so okay. yeah yeah okay they also uh uh lay claim to the kids bop series so okay i know i know that's gonna be a that's gonna be a fun time in your life coming
1: up no it's it's funny i just listened to uh i just listened to open Mike eagle on the 60 songs podcast and the host rob Harvilla asked him if he had like ever introduced himself introduced his kids to the they might be giants kids comp kids uh discography and he's like no
0: <laughs> My child does not
1: listen to kids music and it's the same in our house. Our, our, our child does not listen to kids music. He, he's getting a crash course, uh, in, in just like having adult taste in music.
0: Yeah. So it's like, it's a win for these, uh, for these little labels because they get to put these compilations together and sell them to people. It was a winner. It was a win for the consumer because this is pre Napster. So if you only wanted one song, and you liked a bunch of the other songs that were kind of in rotation around the same time. Then this was a huge boon for you because you didn't have to buy all uh, you know each of these other albums. I mean, this is predisposing like you don't know somebody that can just like tape that stuff for you. And it's a win for the label because you know these are all singles that were going off the air that had limited relevance, and so they could flog it for sales one more time. Right. Right. Um, I I would just I just want
1: to add that the Freedom Rock commercial does feature two washed up losers remembering the good old days when music was better. So I <laughs> first podcasters. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> Besides the Freedom Rock one, was there was there anything else that like really stuck with you from these? Yeah, th- there's one more
1: that I came across. Uh it was called Living in the 90s. And so at first thought I was like is this a compilation of like all 90s music and encompassing the whole decade, but actually it came out in April of 1991. So basically it captures a very interesting early era of 90s music because it comes out about six months before Nevermind.
0: Yeah. So, wow. When,
1: when you, when you it's listen like to listen Sounds of the 80s. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's a very distinct period of music because you're going to get a lot of like EMF and Jesus Jones. Um, and I think, you know, for anybody who wants to kind of understand what the 90s was like, this is a good prologue to kind of get a sense of like what was washed away um when when nevermind came out but it also shows that even before nevermind the uh there was a lot of like heterogeneousness on the charts in in the 90s like there's a lot of i mean the the tagline of the commercial is it's the 90s and when it comes to music anything goes and as cheesy as that is that kind of was the case Today, we are talking not about the early 90s, but the late 90s. We're talking about buzz ballads. And as you mentioned, one of the worst eras all time of commercial radio rock. I think I pitched this to you because I saw a TikTok video that was like lambasting the ad for this. Yeah. And I was like, oh, it'd be funny if we just talked about these songs. Uh, All my worst ideas come after I say it would be funny if. um. (laughs)
0: All right. Do you want to get into this? Let's do it. All right. I'm going to give you the first pick. I'm going to be nice. We're going to go in snake order. So okay. you kick it off. This is the round one, pick one of the Buzz Ballads draft. Who are you taking?
1: Okay. With the first pick, I am taking Doll Parts by Hole.
0: Interesting. Okay. Okay.
1: Well, I mean, the simplest answer is that I just think this is the best song on the list for me. It's the one like, going through this again. I wouldn't say that like Hole is my favorite band represented on this list, but I do think that Live Through This is probably the best album from which any of these songs are pulled from. And I am such a sucker for this like Pixie style, quiet verse, loud chorus hyper well-constructed rock music i mean there's a great story of courtney love sort of screaming at whole fans like right around the time of the release of this album just being like i know how to write a bridge now motherfuckers and it's true she does the story of the song is interesting in that and this is a song that she wrote about her competition with two other women for the affections of kurt cobain um i it's funny like I had always understood this as Courtney loves competition for the like love and attention of Kurt Cobain with the fans of Nirvana. But the fact that this is such a, like a specifically targeted love song, I don't know if it makes me like it less or more, but it was interesting to learn that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Interestingly enough, uh, the, the, the Courting ritual. Courtney Love sent Cobain a heart-shaped box scented with a perfume, and inside a porcelain doll, three dried roses, a miniature teacup, and shellac-covered seashells to apologize for their first meeting in May 1991, where Love infamously wrestled with Cobain. What a, what a meat cute, huh? <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. I, I have, have no big... doubt that she fucking rocked him. <laughs>
0: oh oh yeah 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 definitely definitely. <laughs> what kind of what kind of moves do you think uh, Courtney Love was putting on Cobain there?
1: I'm trying to imagine what, like, because the the heart shaped box does sounds like does sound like a wrestling finisher, yeah, sort of yeah. like a figure four leg lock.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely was an influence for Cobain when he penned the Nirvana song "Heart Shaped Box." But I, th- I'm pretty sure that Courtney Love had like the crossfade chicken wing, <laughs> going there. So, did you have this song high on your draft board? It was. I had it coming in at number three. I guess we should run down the particulars on this. This is from "Live Through This," which was released in 1994. The single hit radio on November 1994. It peaked at number 58 on the Billboard Hot 100 and number four on the U.S. modern rock tracks. Uh, some other interesting stuff about this. This was the first single that was released following the death of bassist Kristen Paff, who was previously of Janitor Joe. Janitor Joe, a great noise rock band, didn't know this. Uh, Paff died of heroin overdose. Kind of a sad story. And uh, this was mixed by Scott Litt and Jay Maskis of Dinosaur Jr. Well, I think what's interesting
1: about this song is that it was written and recorded before the death of Kurt Cobain, but released afterward. So in some ways, I think this was interpreted as a response to Kurt Cobain's death, but it was not. It was just sort of a, a very unhappy coincidence.
0: Yeah, kind of like an agonizing thing to put out in the world, I think. And so you know, props to Courtney Love for doing that. Live Through This, great album. Really love it. I I think it's the best thing that Hole ever committed to tape, definitely. Uh I also remember this song coinciding with their unplugged feature on MTV, which was pretty big at the time. Yeah. I think
1: uh so this this song in some ways like it's funny that it's on this compilation because well, like many of the other songs on this list, it is not a ballad. But it's also not post-grunge. I think this is sort of prime-era grunge. I would be very curious to know, like, the selection process for putting, like, how they chose what songs they're going to put on here. I have to guess it's just, like, whatever they had the rights to. But uh, I do think this is... uh, It's interesting in, like, to see this compilation, this song on a compilation with the other tracks that are here is... It sort of sticks out like a sore thumb to me. All right, so you've got the next two picks now, right? Got the next two picks!
0: All right. For the second pick of the buzz Bell draft, I am selecting the cranberries linger.
2: Uh,
1: great choice. Uh, very, it was high on my draft. Actually, interestingly enough, this was number three on my draft board. Um, Interesting.
0: Okay. Yeah. I think this is like one of the only like song songs it's <laughs> like on here
1: <laughs> that's funny <laughs> so what, do you, what makes it a song song as opposed to say uh, I don't know it's been a while
0: yeah I mean it's a, it's just a beautiful composition it, with, that, with that sparkling almost shoegazy type uh, dream pop type vibe uh, this was from everybody else is doing it so why can't we from 1993 it was released February 15th 1993 it peaked at number 4 in the US alt airplay and number 8 on the Billboard Hot 100. So Dolores O'Riordan said that this was a, about an experience with a 17-year-old soldier and also commented that it was about her first serious kiss. What I find interesting about this is that this is one of the earliest Cranberry songs. Yeah, it
1: sounds like really well-developed.
0: Yeah, definitely. And so how this came to be was, uh, and this is Ferg, uh, drummer Fergirl. Fergal Lawler reminiscing and said, quote, it was a Sunday afternoon. She arrived with the keyboard under her arm, just set it up and played a few songs. We couldn't really hear her because she was singing through a guitar amp or something. I gave her a lift up to the bus stop and I was saying, we will see you next week. We gave her a tape of her music for linger, which she took with her the following week. She came back and she had lyrics written out and melodies and she sang along to what we were playing. And it was like, Oh my God, she's so great.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, a totally striking voice. Um, I think that, you know, in addition to her her voice and her performance on this, the composition is striking to me because it begins on a fade-in, yes. which is sort of like unusual. And it sort of breathes a little bit before, um, you know, we hear her, which I think is a very confident move because if I had Dolores O'Riordan in my band, you know, she would be singing within the first three seconds of every song. Uh, so I thought that was, that's a, that's, to me, that's a cool part of this track as well.
0: Yeah, definitely. This was also the song that broke the cranberries. So Reardon commented, I remember when MTV first put Linger in heavy rotation. Every time I walked into a diner or a hotel lobby, it was like, Jesus, man, here I am again. It was trippy, like Jacob's ladder. I didn't even have to take drugs. Love it.
1: Yeah. Did you, um, is this your favorite cranberry song?
0: This is not my favorite cranberry song. I'd probably give that to Dreams. Yeah. I mean, similar, similar similar uh, milieu kind of like in that supreme dream pop vibe but unlike cocktail twins like the hooks are so like ever present and like grow so deeply into you like there's nothing hazy about it really besides like the the very like you know above ground ambient avi- uh, ambiance to it why do you think this i mean so because
1: they they were commercially successful and, and did very well but you know i see them sort of like in the lineage of like the Sundays and a band that kind of like emerges from the, uh, the fallout of the Smiths. And yet they don't seem to have that level of like indie cred. Why do you think that is Is it just because they succeeded so well? Interesting. I think they kind of do have that indie cred, don't they? Okay. Okay. I've never heard someone like recommend the cranberries maybe because they don't need to be recommended because people know them, but I've just never seen them. Like, you know, who's really good is, is the cranberries.
0: Yeah. I was listening to a podcast today that, uh, commented that, you know, if you look through literature of like Asian Asia, like nobody mentions chopsticks because they're just so prevalent. Like why would you interesting. write about it? Interesting. And I think that's kind of like the, the same deal here. Like they just got so huge so fast. And one of the interesting things about that is that they were on tour supporting Suede and then MTV puts Linger into heavy rotation, and then Suede became their opening band halfway through the tour. Yeah, this is also one of the few bands that are not from California that are on the compilation.
1: <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah, it's either so, California or the UK.
0: Yeah, that's something we'll have to, we'll have to take, a, take a look at, uh, especially when as we count off all the California bands. We already hit one with Hole, so there's, <laughs> there's far more coming. That's for sure. Uh, real quick, just because, I mean, we're talking about the Cranberries. Uh, we can both agree that Zombie is a terrible song, right?
1: Um, I don't think it's terrible, but in terms of like their hard rocking songs, I prefer Salvation.
0: Yeah, I think that's fair. I think Salvation fits better on that album than Zombie does on its album. And What don't you like about Zombie? Uh, I mean, it's the instant skip of No Need to Argue. It's so leaden and so out of place and just so self-consciously grimdark that, you know, I don't need it.
1: Yeah, fair enough. I think it works better in a live context. The SNL performance of that song is really good.
0: Yeah, that's pretty good. I mean, when it's like divorced from being inside this like near immaculate dream pop album, I can kind of get down with it. But it's just, you know, I've always said that I'm more annoyed by music that's closer to the stuff that I like and stuff that's like far away from it. It's their most self-consciously grunge song. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm not going to like, like I don't really have context for like bad Bonda music. And so that stuff just kind of like floats over me. But if you, if you're going to, you know, stop the distortion box and like we're getting closer to what I like and then I'm going to be more annoyed by it. I think it's just the uncanny factor of the cranberries trying to be heavy. Yeah, fair enough. All right, you get the next pick. All right. With the third pick, the first pick in the second round here, I am taking Oasis's Champagne Supernova.
1: Can I be honest with you? Yep. I fucking hate this song. (laughs)
0: I it's not my favorite Oasis song, for sure, but we're already in the Slim Pickens <laughs> portion of the Buzz Ballads, so yeah. I kinda had to take it. And at the very least, it has one of the more interesting guest spots. Paul Weller from The Jam plays guitar on this. Okay. Alright, so that's I have to tell you, like this
1: song probably delayed me getting into the Beatles by like ten years.
0: <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> because, okay.
1: Because because people were like, you know, Oasis, they sound just like the Beatles, and I was like, well, if it sounds like Champagne Supernova, I'm not fucking listening to Oasis. I'm not listening to the Beatles. Um, I do like Oasis. I, I I really do. This is just my least favorite Oasis song.
0: Okay. I mean, they got a, they got a lot of bad ones after this
1: (laughs) well this is my least
0: favorite this is uh my least favorite pre be here now uh, sure (laughs) yeah fair fair enough so this is from what's the story morning glory which came out in 1995 it was released in may of 1996 this was deep into the uh release cycle for that album it was a number one in u.s alt airplay and it wasn't released as a retail single so it never hit the hot 100 Really? That's interesting. I mean,
1: this song was on heavy rotation on MTV. Heavy rotation, which is is the is the is the MTV version is it shy of the actual album runtime of 7 minutes and 20 seconds?
0: Yes, there is a single cut that is significantly shorter.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe if they had condensed this down to like three minutes, I would have enjoyed it more, but it just, it just takes so long to get going and then it just doesn't even really get anywhere for me, but all right, I'm being an asshole. This is your pick. Tell me what recommends it for you beyond it. Just being like not as shitty as the rest of the stuff.
0: I just think it has a good hook and it's a good hang. And so it's a good strummer of an acoustic song, which, you know, I hate to say it. I kind of, I kind of like that stuff. And you know, this is like, Uh, imperial period oasis so it's kind of hard to mess with that even though i will agree that this is lesser oasis and this does not compare to the singles compilation that they put out that has all the uk singles on it which is like as perfect as a brit pop album can be maybe right do you do you like all right um if if
1: it's like between what's the story morning glory and modern life is rubbish what direction are you going in I don't know, it's like kinda of like kinda of like different vibes, right? Right. Yeah. It's so funny to me that those bands were in such like heavy competition with each other because they don't and like like musically they don't compete. They fill very different needs for me.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like uh I, I I always I always struggled with the the Beatles comparisons too because it didn't make sense to me either. Like Oasis's closest sonic comparison is like Stone Roses.
1: Right. They have that baggy sound. Um, That sort of like kind of psychedelic thing. I mean, the reality is, is that um, Liam Gallagher's voice sounds like John Lennon's voice on "Rain," but that doesn't mean that they sound like the Beatles in any other like meaningful way.
0: But um yeah. the great thing about Oasis in this period, and I think, is the mark of a great band is like their rhythm section crushed. Yeah,
1: and they never, they never discussed really. Yeah,
0: they they could they could write out like absolutely nobody's business yeah it would be fun to have an
1: episode to just talk about Baggy a little bit and sort of what that represented and and like how it didn't penetrate in the u.s whatsoever excited for maybe a few stone roses songs yeah um i have a I, i remember you know melissa was like telling me a story of uh one coachella many years ago when they were kind of promoting the big like uh surprise act with like a a at like least an image of a, style, a pile of stones or something. And I was like, oh, it's going to be the Rolling Stones. This is incredible. This is going to be so good. And then they announced it was the Stone Roses, and everyone was like, oh, fuck, who's that? You know? <laughs> <laughs> or like, we don't care. Yeah. And yeah, which is a bummer because, I mean, they were, a. I mean, talk about a band that just got washed away when Nirvana came around.
0: Yes, yeah, somewhat. I mean, like Love Spreads was making some radio rounds at the time, but again, all that stuff was, it just didn't cross over to it didn't translate
1: market. it just yep. didn't translate all right so now i've got two picks eh you got two in a row okay so with my next pick i am gonna take i'm gonna take long december by the count of crows it's one
2: more day up in the canyon
0: and it's one thank God okay <laughs> why why are you picking long December
1: uh well I'll, to, to, one thing I'll say is it, it is it is a ballad um <laughs>
0: a rarity for this compilation yes
1: <laughs> um also I have a soft spot for I have to I gotta I'm to uh take issue with you calling them a middling and you you so you mentioned in your notes that they were given like a a giant mansion with like no expenses spared to um to write the follow-up and record the follow-up to August and everything after. And you sort of put parenthetically that, you know, what a time that record labels would just give all these big stacks of cash to these middling rock acts. And what I'll say to you is August and everything after sold eight million fucking copies. Yeah. <laughs> that was a, that was a big record by a, by a, uh, I think I have a soft spot for that. I I'm <sighs> It's one of my it's one of my top like big commercial pop records of the nineties. I really like August and everything after. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like a song like Omaha or Rain King. Um, I I I mean, it's just one of those things that I got on tape when it came out and spent a lot spent a lot of solitary time with that record like when I was ten years old. So it might be partly nostalgia, but listening back to it, like I think it competes with out of time. I think it's honestly I think it's better than out of time. In terms of like those really rootsy kind of like art sepia toned like alt rock albums of the early nineties, I think it's like the best of best in show. But this song is not on that album. This is on the follow-up, which I don't have a lot of like connection to, but this is like a will a well written song, good story, good vocal performance. I don't I don't have an issue with this song. I'm surprised that you dislike this so much. Is it just is it is it Adam Duritz's hair? Is his hair blinding you to
0: the quality of this music? It's the dude's voice okay i cannot stand his voice i I forget which song it is because I've, I've tried to block all this out of my memory but there's some song that he ends and he's like yeah, yeah that's, that's rain king oh um, man that song. song is terrible song. He, he's that song is awful it's that's like, he's a like great, rain king's a great song it's like it's like 5 p.m and he's like calling the cows back in oh
1: <laughs> that that moment is i mean like listen you, you could say it's a surprise sur- sur- Superfluous vocal uh uh improvisation at the end, but that's a Rain King's a great song. Come
0: on, man, you're killing me here. No, no, can't can't stand the Calling Crows. Yeah. Don't do um, it for me.
1: You also mentioned in your notes that he dated Courtney Cox and you say this incredulously. I'm gonna make you even more incredulous. He also dated Jennifer Aniston.
2: Dude, what? <laughs> Why? Why have you, seen, have you
1: have you seen the movie Amadeus? Uh yes. Well, there's a very important line in that, in that movie when the woman says, only talent interests a woman of taste. Uh,
0: <laughs> oh, man. Uh, the, the cocaine on the friend set must have been like grade A incredible.
1: Wow. Yeah. Well, if it makes you feel any better, Adam Duritz is miserable. He's like, he knows everybody hates him and it makes him really... Bummed out. So
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess I should run the numbers on this real quick. Uh, this is from recovering the satellites from 1996. The this single was released December second, 1996. This was another song that didn't make to the Billboard Hot 100, but it did peak at number one on the U.S. Adult Alternative Songs. Um, have you ever heard the Between the Buried and Me cover of Colorblind? Uh, one thousand percent no, because I hate that band. You do you do you hate their entire discography? I uh, I mean, I like Mordecai. That's their only saving grace. Yeah. I like the first two albums a lot. Um, okay. So I have, do I have two in a row now? You definitely have two in a row. You get to go again. Unfortunately, there's not another Counting Crows song. On the <laughs> I'm just going to start like naming. Oh, God. They listen, they do have some
1: terrible shit in their discography. They really, they really do. They really do. I get, I get the backlash to Counting Crows.
0: I mean, but... we, we will do a podcast where I will listen to whatever the album is their big breakout i i immediately forgot the name <laughs> that's how much i dislike this band yeah all right now we're getting it we're already in like the really
1: slim like every, every like every pick i make from here on out i'm gonna be slightly embarrassed to make uh are we in the guilty pleasure zone yet uh i think i just picked one of my guilty pleasures <laughs> like we're there um, for pick one yeah okay Uh, all right, I'll I'll pick uh, till I hear it from you by the gin blossoms. Fuck! Okay.
2: <laughs> I'll just everything is cool until I hear it from you.
1: Uh this is just a this is just a really solid group. Um and this is a good song. And this is a so this is a post-Doug Hopkins composition. Um, but what I think is interesting about this band is that you know this their story is, is pretty well known now which is that you know they formed in, in phoenix arizona in the late 80s sort of hey jealousy their big breakout song was written by doug hopkins who was sort of like their lead guitar player slash songwriter uh hopkins is a a suffering big time with drug and alcohol addiction he's basically blackmailed out of the group like i think his publishing rights i think his his advance was withheld from him in exchange for pub, like like half of his publishing or something like that he takes the deal cuz he like needs money the band goes on to be hugely successful on the back of his song and i think like if the story stops there you could say wow the 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 guys in that band are just a bunch of freeloaders who kind of got famous off of their troubled friend um but the band was always very complimentary of Doug. They seemed to try to help him, and and, and their follow-up album, uh, Congratulations, I'm Sorry, has like I think competitive music on it. Like it, they 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 don't like totally fall off a cliff after Hopkins steps out of the frame.
0: Yeah, Doug Hopkins writes all the good material and New Miserable Experience, except for one song, which is Allison Road, which I'm pretty yeah, fond it's of. Yes, great song. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, song. yeah, great power pop song. Great jangle song too which so yeah. was pretty out of style when that album came out. Right. Uh, interesting note from this song is that uh, the guitarist, uh, Jesse Valenzuela, wrote this with Marshall Crenshaw.
1: Yeah, that's uh, that, that shocked me when I saw that in your, uh, in your notes here.
0: Yeah, Power Pop God, Marshall Crenshaw. Marshall Crenshaw uh, and Jesse worked out a early version of this, and then I guess the song got back to Marshall Crenshaw later, and he was like, what the fuck? I was just like nitpicking it to death. And then he says that, you know, it helped him get to a better place compositionally because he just, you know, was like, this is a huge hit. I need to stop being so anal retentive. About yeah. This you stuff. can't,
1: you can't, you can't perfect everything.
0: There's also an interesting label kerfuffle around this because this appeared on the empire records soundtrack. And so there was a real push to get gin blossoms on there because gin blossoms was going to anchor that soundtrack And they had to figure out which label was going to go on. And this is, I'm not going to detail the story here too much, but this is definitely something that would not happen in the year of our Lord 2023.
1: No. Uh, Yeah, this is like, this is a totally relic. Like these, like these sort of like label dust ups leading to songs not appearing on every version of an album that that doesn't happen anymore.
0: Yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. So this it would hit uh versions of the Jim Blossom's albums later, but not all of them, and it's very confusing as to why that is, but again, this is from the Empire Records original soundtrack from nineteen ninety-five. It was released as a single on June twenty fourth, nineteen ninety five. Do you have any feelings for Empire Records, the movie? I've never seen it. Really?
1: Yeah, I've never seen it. It's which is which is funny because like it's it's discussed so frequently in like, you know, that that era of sort of like influential, sort of like grunge era mu- movies. I just I haven't seen it. I've seen singles. I've seen uh what's 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 the Ethan Hawk one? Uh reality bites?
0: Yeah, reality bites. But yeah, I've yeah, never
1: yeah. seen I've never seen Empire Records. Just just a just a hole
0: in my uh in my yeah. We're mining future podcast episodes. Uh, you're going to make me listen to counting crows. And then we're going to review empire records and see if it holds up. in 2023.
1: Yeah. And then we're going to, we're both going to grow like closely cropped goatees and start wearing flannel more often. Cause we're just, we're going to start living as though it's 1993 at all times.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what do you mean start? <laughs> <laughs> That's been my fashion choice since eighth grade. Um, do you have a favorite Jim Blossom song? Uh, you know, what I, if,
1: on the spot, I mean, I don't, I don't, want to sound like I'm just jocking your style, but it's probably, it probably is Alison Road.
0: Yeah, that's a banger. I think mine is "Found Out About You," but yeah, I mean, the the three greatest songs from that album, "Hey Jealousy," "Found Out About You," and Alison Road can't get wrong.
1: Yeah, I would, I would kill for sort of like a band at that level to be writing that type of songs right now.
0: Yeah, yeah, 100%. What, what's interesting is that uh, I don't want to go into like the Jim Blossom's deep dive here, but Hey Jealousy was the third single from that album. That, and that also never happens
1: uh, anymore. The, the, there's another, you know what, uh, just to kind of spoil a future conversation, but if you could only see by Tonic, also the third single on that album.
0: Yeah, yeah. A lot of these bands were given a hell of a lot of rope.
1: Right. Well, I think that actually might be a argument in favor of all the money that was being spelt, spent to like sort of develop and record and produce these bands, which is sort of forces the labels to buy in a little bit and not like give up when the audience doesn't buy in after 20 seconds of the first single. For my next pick, I'm going to take Something's Always Wrong by Toad the Woods Oh,
0: didn't you? Didn't you just have two? Did I do two already? Yeah.
1: Okay. Undo. All right, forget that. I okay,
0: now I know what's on your board. <laughs>
1: I feel I'm like the, uh, I feel like I feel like the Oakland, the uh, Orlando Magic, like sending out a picture of their draft board by accident.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what's what's that Kevin Costner movie about the uh, Oh draft, draft Day? Dude, yeah,
1: dude, that movie is so fun to watch. It is. It makes no sense. It it does watch like someone who's like never even considered football before made it, but it rules.
0: I I will. Uh, Let's put it on the board. Put it on the board. All right. Let's you're put right. it on the board. All right. So for my two picks, I'm going to kick this off with, and I'm interested to hear your reaction here. Toad the wet. No. Uh, <laughs> I'm going with live lightning crashes. Oh. Lightning crashes.
1: Um uh, okay. Uh defend defend your choice.
0: Well, Dave, <laughs> as you know, sometimes the placenta falls to the floor. <laughs> uh,
1: okay, can you uh I really I kind of deeply dislike this song.
0: So I think this was kinda like I have I have a weird relationship with the Might be alive. a victim
1: of overplay. It might be a victim of overplay.
0: I think that's it. I think that's it. I I also have a weird relationship alive where I, I kind of like a lot of your stuff. Dude, dude,
1: can I tell you? So like uh, a little like mythology or lore here. I, I grew up in a, in a very like religious family and I was not allowed to basically interact with pop culture without a screening by my dad first. And even though this album has a song called Shit Town on it, <laughs> I, was, I was able to get it because i was able to convince him that they were like a religious group i was like oh yeah they're like very christian and i think like selling the drama might hint at that in some way i'm not sure but excelling the drama in uh all over all over you is that the others like those yeah. those mm-hmm. are bang arenas, dude
0: yep yep of course we're talking about throwing copper that came out in 1994 lightning crashes is another third single from an album And it was released in September 1994. It peaked at number 12 on the Billboard Hot 100. So uh, this song was dedicated to Barbara Lewis, who was killed by a drunk driver in 1993. And Ed Kowalski, the lead singer, says, While the clip, uh, excuse me, about the video, while the clip is shot in a home environment, I envisage it taking place in a hospital where all these simultaneous deaths and births are going on. One family mourning the loss of a woman while a screaming baby emerges from a young mother in another room. Nobody's dying in the act of childbirth, as some viewers think. What you're actually seeing is a happy ending based on a kind of transference of life. Okay. All right.
1: All right. That, that, that demystifies this song for me because I did think it was about a, a child being lost during labor
0: yeah well um, i mean it's kind of like it's kind of like the like a undergrad philosophy of just like man it's crazy that we're born in the same hospitals that we die isn't it dude
1: that is kind of crazy though right
0: which is <laughs> which is kind of like i mean that's kind of like the live mo i think but yeah. in this period they were just cutting some bangers like the yeah. i think the best song from this album is white discussion
1: okay okay i actually honestly like i need to go back and listen to this album because I don't remember white discussion. I think I remember like I remember the singles the most. I alone, in the drama, and all over you, are the ones that stick out the most. And probably shit town because like I had to like turn it down whenever it came on, so I wouldn't get in trouble for listening to it.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like the the best live song is off the next one. That's Lakini's Juice, which not only has a killer groove to it, but it has like a really good string arrangement. Like that was something that bands were allowed to do in the nineties. Well, we'll we'll get to that later when we talk about that Everlast song that has like. <laughs> Just
1: a very extensive roster of musicians on it.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, I like, I like the mood of this one. I like, I like Ed's voice in it. I think Ed does a pretty good read of it. He, he kind of sounds like a uh, this Mortal Coil. Oh, interesting. And I never, I never made that connection before. Yeah, it has like a kind of like a weird gothiness to it, and it just sounds so different from like everything else that's on this compilation. So I kind of appreciate that, and it gives me a you know. Time to talk about my embarrassing respect for life.
1: Well, I mean, I, I mean, I already kind of went to the mattresses for Counting Crows, so all bets are off at this point. The, the The enduring memory I have of this song is in in high school we had a we had a friend whose music taste was solidly buzz ballad. Like, if we had to describe what she liked, it would be this type of music. And whenever this song came on the radio, we would just sing it in the most like overdone like hyper hyperbolic Ed Kowalski like, impression just to the point of making her change the channel so we didn't have to listen to live anymore.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean he definitely goes for it on this song, but I, I I will say that, you know, live walked so Creed could stumble and crawl. So Creed could drive their car into the side of a a
1: bridge abutment. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh man. All right, so you got anything else about live that we want to rake myself over to Cole's about? Well,
1: just real quickly, did, wasn't there some big story about Ed Kowalski being scammed out of a lot of money by a QAnon guy this past year? Did I mean, that, that
0: would not surprise me at all. Okay. Did, did all the right. QAnon guy dress up like a dolphin? Yeah, we'll,
1: <laughs> we'll put a pin in that one because you know we don't want to we don't want to defame the the boys <laughs> from live because throwing copper is a I'll say it it's a good album.
0: I think it's, it's one of those albums that was near ubiquitous in the 90s, and I think it mostly holds up, which some of them don't. All right, so you've got a second pick here now. My second pick is, again, Toe the now. Proc- no. Um, <laughs> my pick here is going to be Soul Asylum's Runaway Train.
1: Okay. All right. Talk a little bit about this one,
0: because this was a huge song. Absolutely massive song. I just like Soul Asylum, the band. We're kind of hitting this point in the list where it's just kind of like, if I don't like the song that much, at least I like the band. And I think Soul Asylum was a great band. Interestingly, they're the second oldest band on this compilation forming in 1981. Oh, wow. Yeah, they put their time in the trenches. Yeah, so they'd been around for a while. And plus they had a ton of albums that were out around this time. They were one of those bands that came out that was like in the wake of Husker Du and Replacements and were kind of like biting their stuff a little bit and then somewhat matured past that, i.e. the Google Dolls. Great bands to rip off, by the way. Like, why not? I mean, can think of a few better. And this is just kind of like, you know, another hook-filled strummer of a song. This came out on Grave Dancers Union, which was released in 1992. The single, again, this was pretty deep into the release cycle. The single was released June 1st, 1993. It went number two U.S. Mainstream Top 40 and number five on the Billboard Hot 100. What do you remember about this song? Well, I it, it's you know I'm
1: probably nine years old when this song comes out, so it's one of the first songs that got me into sort of choosing for myself what kind of music I wanted to listen to, and a lot of it was this sort of like guitar based strummy music or 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 grunge. Um, the first three songs on this album, "Somebody to Shove," "Black Gold," and "Runaway Train." I mean, that's how you fucking do it. Those are the three singles, and you're and you're definitely like front loading. But that is how you start an album. Uh, some, I mean, that guitar riff at the start of "Somebody to Shove." I mean, that is is that like the best opening to a, a like a, a hard rock album or alternative rock album of the early '90s? It's so iconic.
0: Yeah. Do you remember those songs being all over the radio in Boston? You know what's funny is
1: I didn't hear either of those until runaway train came out and then some kid on my street bought the album and then we listened to the album and i was like oh my god they have more than one good song um my brother was a big fan of this album and he was a big fan of somebody to shove i remember like he would blast that in his uh toyota pickup truck when i was a kid
0: yeah 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 i uh booger t jones is on this album oh um, nice see the mgs so here we go where are they uh, from uh they are from minneapolis
1: Okay, so it makes sense that they're of the Husker Du replacements. Lineage.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the interesting story about this album's production is that the producer Michael Beinhorn hated Grant Young, who was the drummer, couldn't stand his performance, so he brought in Sterling Campbell as a ringer, and then Beinhorn and Campbell like, wound it up playing on like the rest of the record. So Grant Young really does not feature on this record and was kicked out of the band shortly thereafter
1: has there is there has there ever been a producer who liked a band's drummer like is there a, is there a story of a producer being like I'm really a fan of the drummer you happen to have in this band when I met Yeah so yeah I always yeah, like
0: right yeah <laughs> yeah I think this yeah I don't want to I don't want to like again defame Michael Beinhorn, but I think this was a strategy for producers in the you know the 80s and the 90s is to complain about some aspect of the band and get their friends in there so they could earn additional points on yeah. the album it's like you're out and bring in Gene Krupa yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i guess the song stems from uh dave perner who was the singer uh he was having a nervous breakdown because he thought he was losing his hearing oh, god a nightmare yeah yeah absolutely and so this was one of the songs that came out of him playing uh just the acoustic guitar to try and like you know allay the tinnitus yeah i uh i i
1: i've I, you know had have had moments like that driving back from a band practice and just hearing the ringing in your ears despite wearing your protection and everything like that but there was one night about a year and a half ago we were just sleeping and our fire alarm went off really really loud and i had like ringing for a good like hour and a half and it was talk about a dark night of the soul it was just really, really i mean like have you seen uh the sound of metal yeah yeah, uh, I think such a fantastic movie. I mean, it's it's sort of like a, I guess you could say it's kind of a niche issue, but for people who love music, the idea of not being able to hear anymore and having to like sacrifice that is really, a, it's really a story about losing a part of yourself.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, so the video for Runaway Train famously features real missing children. Yeah. in an effort to try and locate these missing children. Uh, 36 missing children were featured in the video that was directed by Tony Kaye, who later directed, dun, 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 American History X. Weird. And per Tony Kaye, 26 of the children were eventually found. But Dan Murphy, the guitarist, says that some of these were not the best scenarios. Quote, I met a fireman on the East Coast whose daughter was in the end of the video and he had been in bitter custody battle with his wife over her. It turned out the girl hadn't run away, but was killed and buried in her backyard by her mother. Then on tour, another girl told us laughingly, you ruined my life because she saw herself in a video at her boyfriend's house, and it led to her being forced back into a bad home situation, end quote. So there you go.
1: If you, if you see something, don't say something, I guess. The, <laughs> take away from that. I'm not really sure how to respond to that. <laughs> it's like, I, I saw someone like post it, like a Instagram meme that was like, if you see someone stealing from a grocery store, no, you
0: didn't. This is like, (laughs) if you see a missing child, no, you didn't. (laughs) I love that it just comes up like so cavalierly in like an interview. It's like, all right, so let me tell you about the the girl that was buried in the backyard. Oh God. All right. Is that, is that two for you? That is two for me.
1: Okay. All right. uh, With my next (laughs) pick, I suppose I should just go ahead. And, how long can we delay picking something's always wrong? With my <laughs> <laughs> now that it's a meme, can we just put it off a little bit more? All right. With my, <laughs> with my next pick, I'm going to take out of my head by fastball.
2: I been
0: so blind? I was for an wow. Okay.
1: Um, I have a moderate soft spot for this band just because of how they stood in contrast to the other stuff that was played on rock radio in between 1998
0: and 2001. Oh, okay. Um, For me,
1: like if it's like a choice between this or power man, 5,000, like it's, I I just, I just distinctly remember hearing uh, the way and then this is what it's like when worlds collide coming on afterward. And I'm like, I know what kind of music I'd rather listen to. Um, I don't know. Like, it's not my favorite, but hearing just very competently professionally written and performed and played like piano rock on the radio in the late nineties. It was like an oasis for me.
0: Uh, so you didn't think that fastball just sounded like adult contemporary smash mouth. Um, like, it was it was like significantly less than i mean
1: listen if it's 1998 like you could be worse things on the radio than adult contemporary smash mouth to me i guess would be my answer to that um but i to me it just sounded like it sounded like like the band you know but like hyper cleaned up and modernized for adult contemporary radio
0: okay um, as we stated, there's 32 songs on this compilation. I had this ranked at 23. You, oh, uh, okay.
1: Well, we're not that far off from the 23rd pick at this point, are we? I guess we're like in the mid, we're in the mid teens at this point or the teen, early teens. Uh, no, we're not that close. Um, all right. Give me the, give me the counter. I mean, like, I'm not going to be hurt if you tell me that this is like the dumbest shit you've ever heard, but I mean, look at the options here. You know,
0: it's not the dumbest shit I've ever heard, but it's an absolute nothing burger of a song is the shortest song in the compilation, clocking in at two minutes and 32 seconds, and they do absolutely nothing with it. And that's not uh, dissimilar from the other Lost yeah. Paul songs, I feel. I'll tell, I tell you one thing I like. The, the
1: organ solo in this song kind of reminds me of the, uh, of the organ solo in, uh, at the beginning of Dirty Work by Stuby Dan. So maybe it's just like, it's having sort of like, uh, it's like a contact high almost.
0: Yeah, that is Bennett Salve, who's playing, playing the Heyman organ. So this was from All the Pain Money Can Buy, which came out in 1998. It was released on January 25th, 1994. It went number three, U.S. Adult Top 40, and number 20, Billboard Hot 100. And until we did this exercise, I totally forgot the song existed. (laughs) You know how, like,
1: after Mercury Rev put out Your Self-Esteem, they started making, like, piano y adult contemporary music, and it was still, like pretty passable and pretty good, but just so far away from what they were before that. Like this feels like what Mercury Rev would have sounded like if they had just kept like stripping down, stripping down and getting further and further away from being like the monster of a band they were in the late eighties.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can't even give that much credit. Like I cannot stand this band. This is like, this is right when I decided that the radio had gotten as bad as it would ever get. Well, me too, but I guess this was just, this was just, to me, this
1: was like the alternative to new metal, which I just really fucking hated.
0: Yeah. Yeah. To you, this was the oasis. To me, this was the, the fetid swamp. <laughs> that you know, I, I crashed a car into and then drowned my date or something to go completely Ted Kennedy on this and then run um, for senator. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. You got anything else? Like I was, I found it interesting that Fastball was around as a band for such a long time before this. They formed in 1992.
1: Well, my question here is, what was the, what was the motive what was the incentive that made this band happen? Because they didn't really sound like anything else that was happening on the radio at this time.
0: I mean, they kind of did. I think they're kind of like I think they're in that Smash Mouth mold of just like okay. a rock yeah. throwback.
1: Yeah, I guess that would be the, the closest thing. Yeah, um, I suppose that was so. They, were they trying to service the Smash Mouth the Smash Mouth audience?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I, I think that was kind of the. I think this was coming out of a time when this was immediately post swing music having a revival. Yeah. And then other labels were like, yeah, let's get that fifties rock thing going. Yeah. Okay. Here's a
1: total aside. Have you listened to the song hell by the cherry pop and daddies in the last two decades?
0: Uh, (laughs) no, but I know what song you're talking about. Yes. Uh, that song is good. (laughs) Okay. It's
1: it's the, the production. Oh, no, it's not cherry pop and daddies. It's the squirrel nut zippers. Sorry. Uh, okay
0: huge difference huge huge (laughs) huge gradation of quality there yeah Mm -hmm. um listen to it i mean to say it's good
1: is probably a step too far but it's interesting the production on it is fascinating it sounds as though it was recorded in 1951 um it's really it's an interesting listen that's all i'll say okay okay do i have another one you do Okay, uh, because I'm, I'm never going to pick Something's Always Wrong, uh, I will take, I suppose it's time to take Far Behind by Candlebox. Okay, not a good song. But because of its inclusion, in Eastbound and Down is a song that I will always laugh my ass off whenever
0: I <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say that. Yeah, the, the funeral scene, beautiful.
1: <laughs> yeah, can you, give a, can you give a little history that I'll give an anecdote?
0: Uh, the history of uh, the song? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure. So this is from Candlebox's self-titled album, which came out in 1993. The single was released July 1993. It peaked at number four in the U.S. mainstream rock, number 18 on the Billboard Hot 100. And this is the first successful band on Maverick Records. Shout out to Madonna.
1: So uh, Candlebox. To me, what's fascinating about Box is that they are a band from Seattle that emerges like at the peak of the grunge movement. They are never talked about as a Seattle band, though, and I, I think it's because it's just so incredibly obvious that they're not on the level like creatively as the other bands that emerge from that scene. Like they just feel so clearly like a second a second wave. Even though I don't, they probably were around even before these other bands, but they feel like a band that has a record deal and because they're servicing an already existing audience, not because they're particularly creative or very good. Uh, this song, You by them, I really dislike, really, really dislike. Uh, s- such heavy rotation on Boston rock radio in the early 90s. Um, but I wanna share a funny YouTube comment I found in researching this. So this is one of the top comments uh, for the video of uh, uh, the Eastbound and Down clip, which features uh, far behind Kenny Powers arriving to a funeral and playing this song and not singing along to it, but dancing along to it. Uh, But the top comment says a good friend of mine passed away recently and his funeral was a few days ago, a few days ago, (laughs) the entire time this scene was playing in my head and it sort of came to life when a majority of our friends pulled up fashionably late drinking beers and smoking, While walking down the path in a cemetery, his uncle was just like, who the hell are they? And his grandpa says, oh, those are just his friends, LOL. Rest in peace, Johnny, and thank you for everything, bro.
0: Wow. So, (laughs) number one, when I die, I, I am giving you the green light to play this at my funeral, but only... After uh, the entire congregation is forced to watch me rise from my coffin on meat hooks and dance around to Black Sabbath's "Children of the Sea," yeah. Well,
1: I'm, I'm only, say,
0: only, yeah. only after that.
1: Yeah,
0: I'm gonna say, don't bury him
1: yet. I want to add to the speeches, and then I'll walk up playing. <laughs> yes. This. yes, 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 yes. Uh, no, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say, don't bury him yet. I want to add to the speeches. Then I'm gonna play the most obscure metalcore band from Black Market Activity, circa 2002. <laughs>
0: I'd be like, I'd be like, no, no. He would have liked this. <laughs> yeah, my, my fifth ex-wife is like, is this from a second story window? Um yeah, like Dean. It, yeah. I, <laughs> so yeah, uh, funny funny thing about Candlebox is that they were always the band that was labeled as like the grunge hanger-ons. I often see Far Behind and you listed as the first post-grunge songs. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't really seem to fit with the timeline for me because they were formed in 1990, which albeit was after a lot of the first wave of grunge and even maybe the second wave of grunge bands came through. But it's not like they came out immediately after like Smells Like Teen Spirit. Like they were around. And number two, this song was written as a tribute to Andrew Wood of Mother Love Bone. Other songs that were written as a tribute were Temple of the Dogs' Reach Down and Say Hello to Heaven and Alice in Chains' Wood. So it's like they were there.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's just funny because they're just never discussed as being one of those bands. I don't know. Was it? Was it like their look? Was it? I don't know. It's hard to describe why I just don't associate Candlebox with first wave grunge. But I just, guess, like, I just don't. And I, maybe it's because like they struck me as a kind of band like unlike Nirvana or Soundgarden that wouldn't have been annoyed that Jocks liked them. And I don't know how to like. <laughs> I don't know how to quantify that in any kind of way. But it just feels true.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the reason they're not held in the same esteem is because they're bad. Right, right. <laughs> but, you know, the other band that got tarred with the post-grunge brush around the same time was Stone Temple Pilots, who I will argue is not, not a grunge band.
1: Yeah. Uh. God, I really like Stone Temple
0: Pilots. <laughs> yeah, me too. I mean, yeah. That's the we'll product
1: to... of our age. If we were if we were four years older, we would feel embarrassed about that. But because we're as old, because we happen to be exactly the age we are, it's it's less of an issue to to recognize how good the panel was.
0: I I don't like. I think it's like if you're in that specific little pocket of person. Because if you're older than that, then I think you recognize that albums like Core were just good air metal. Right. Right.
1: And like I thought that they were like pretty sophisticated. Like there's like there's like jazz chord changes in the Interstate Love Song. You know.
0: Yeah, I mean, like, a Purple is really when they, they, you know, they come to the fore is like hitting their artistic peak. But like, it, I, I can't ignore how good of a glam metal album core is that has some grunge affectations, but not enough for, for me to call it a grunge band. Right. But we are not here,
1: my friends, to discuss Stonehill Pilots. We're here to discuss the best post-grunge songs. Do I have another pick here? Yes, because I just picked I picked uh, Fastball and Candlebox. So it
0: is back to you. Yeah, Yep. Yeah. So with this pick in the Buzzbell Draft, I am selecting Tonics if you could only say. If you
2: could only see the way she loves me, then maybe you would understand.
1: Boom. how'd uh, it go? This is this was hanging around like Devin Booker in the 2014 NBA draft.
0: Yeah, I mean this is this is uh, I wouldn't say this is the best tonic song. I think I would give that to You Wanted More, which I think is... Is that the second single? That's from the next album. And that was the first single from that album. And that is that is a absolute power pop gem of a song that has such a beautiful aching chorus. But we're talking about If You Can Only See. This is from Tonic's Lemon Parade, which came out in 1996. It was released March 1997. This was another single that was deep into the album cycle, and this went number one U.S. mainstream rock. Emerson Hart said, quote, when I was 21 or 22, I was in love with somebody who, who my mom did not feel was a good fit, so my family disowned me for about three years in the last conversation I had with my mother. When I was home, I said, if you could only see the way she loves me, maybe you would understand. I just wrote that song after that phone call literally in a matter of minutes, end quote.
1: tracks i mean it's such a a compact like verse chorus verse bridge chorus type deal like it's not particularly complicated like composition but i think it's really well done i will say the bridge on this song is fucking sick uh i really think it's the best part of the song
0: yeah it's just it's just very competently professionally made pop also not a ballad
1: Right, right. Uh, this is another example um, of an album where the first three songs are the singles, Open Up Your Eyes, Casual Affair, and If You Could Only See. I think this is because like, this is the era of walking into Sam Goody or The Wall and literally being able to sample the albums through headphones that were plugged into The Wall. And so you had to front load it in order to boost
0: sales. Yeah, yeah. Open Up Your Eyes, great slice of almost psychedelic, Beatlesque rock love that song my 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 cross to bear is that when i was on twitter or x as we're calling it now yeah when i was when i was on that website every month there'd be a different segment of metal twitter that would rediscover google dolls and be like holy shit this band is amazing and i would hang in those conversations for you know about like three or four tweets Just replying to people being like, yeah, yeah, well, you know, you should check out the early stuff. It's very good. Definitely ride for the early stuff. And then somebody would be really grooving with me and be like, yeah, man, you know what other band you should check out if you like this stuff? Tonic. And then reliably that person would never tweet me again. I'm pretty sure they would block me.
1: Yeah. Um, This just feels like maybe this is the first case of a, band having their reputation diminished because of their association with this commercial.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a possibility. I think at the time this was labeled as like super weak stuff, like because it was coming out, uh, you know, when You Wanted More came out, was 1999, which is like we're in new metal full swing, right? And so the fact that you would have a band that would be doing something that vulnerable and heartfelt is and that, you know, tuneful
1: in a Right, but also just like making a a a, a recognizable sort of structured rock song, you know? Which is so funny because like you, you think back to the the presentation and the lyrics and even the vocal delivery of that era of new metal it's like that's such a funny dichotomy of like that was what was considered like hyper masculine back then it's funny (laughs) um all right so you have you have taken uh you have taken if you could
0: only see by tonic do you have another pick here i do my next pick is going to be pose angry johnny why did this last this long this is from Poe's debut hello which came out in 1995 single was released around the same time Uh, i do remember this coming out in the earlier part of 1995 but again that's just my memory this peaked at number seven on the u.s modern rock tracks you got any feels for this song i think this is a pretty good song so I will say I I don't have like a particularly strong
1: relationship with the song. I do remember the video and kind of thinking like, is this Liz fair? I'm not sure like who people are yet. You know, um, this is not the song by this band that I have like the strongest connection with. Can you, can you guess what it is? Uh,
0: was it from this album? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's uh it's trigger happy Jack. Yeah. That's a good, uh, that's a good one. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I just, I like the, uh, I like the chorus on that song. I guess that song is like kind of heavy. Um, what happened to this kind of group? You know what I mean. I'm, I'm thinking like, or even like this kind of song, which you don't really hear
0: anymore. Uh, I mean, just the general fade out of trip hop. I think. Yeah,
1: yeah. I, I, I'm sort of like maybe this is totally inappropriate, but I associate this song in my head with songs like "Cuddle Sneeze" or "Sunny Came Home." Those "Sunny Came Home" is a little bit like lighter, but maybe I'm just connecting them because they're all by female vocalists. With a, but. It's just something sort of like the sort of ethereal, somewhat mysterious, uh, like a female-led track with a, like a heavy heart to it. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was going to say, so you mentioned in your notes that, uh, that the producer who worked on and Little Pill was a fan of this album.
0: Yeah, apparently this was an influence on Glenn Boward when he was working on "Jagged Little Pill" with the more set.
1: Does it feel like "Jagged Little Pill" is like this is what this is what female singers are going to sound like from now on? <laughs> you don't really get a choice in the matter.
0: Yeah, there's definitely a bit of a sea change there, but you know, like uh, I think like Pink is definitely somebody that is born from the furor of "Jagged Little Pill" as well. But yeah, I think it was just a. I think you know, trip hop was just becoming. Out of style, like it it peaks with what the sneaker pimps, yeah. Like that's the the last big trip hop smashed, I think that really had any sway on radio. And then I think we just kind of moved on to different things, right? It was just like a a trend that died out. And it didn't help that uh, the record industry was very unkind to Poe. Tell me more about that. Uh, her next album, Haunted, had a hit song and pushed two hundred fifty thousand copies, and then because of mergers and acquisitions Poe gets dropped and then that's kind of it she just fades away from the music industry after that
1: is this sort of like a new GM coming into a team and be like I didn't draft these guys I don't want them anymore
0: yeah yeah all right so you've taken
1: uh angry Johnny by Poe is there anything more you want to talk about this one before we go on to our next pick
0: yeah I mean just interesting hip-hop connection Poe's early demos and the demos that landed her on Modern Atlantic were recorded with Jay Dilla and RJ Rice, which is kind of cool. Jay Dilla has uh, some production credits on the next one, Haunted, which is, uh, I always thought was kind of fun. You know, it doesn't really fit in with the, the, the Jay Dilla vibe that you would expect. And then Poe's brother is the dude who wrote House of Leaves. Incredible. Uh, yeah, that is
1: uh, um, a lot of talent one family um my 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 brother uh fixes washing machines and uh, i am tentatively employed in the entertainment industry (laughs) (laughs) all right you're up give me two okay my uh next pick
0: will not be (laughs) something's always wrong Wow, the West Rocket. Wow, why, why, why is something always wrong? Such a why is he? Why, why is that falling in a draft? Uh, it's I,
1: it's a, it's a, it's a bit. Um, I, injuries.
0: Question about question. Arm quality. Too short. I just
1: because I because I kind of like spoiled that I was going to pick it. Now I can never pick it because I don't want to seem like I'm incompetent.
0: Fair, fair, fair. <laughs> it's a very Michael Jordan type draft strategy. I and it, I yeah. took
1: and I took that personally. Um I will with well, the next pick I will take Sex and Candy by Marcy Playground. Oh thank god. Okay.
2: I smell sex and candy here. Who's that lounging
1: in? Why uh, why? Because it's not everything you want by Vertical Horizon. <laughs>
0: Okay, so uh, yeah, Marcy Playground. Um, again, this is out of thirty-two songs. I had this ranked at uh, twenty-nine.
1: Whoa, you had it that low? I hate this song. I mean, you have to say like
0: it's it's better than Santeria. It's it's definitely better than Santeria. Did you have that at thirty? <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll talk about Santeria when that goes uh, three parts from now.
1: Well, I mean, my my take on this song is that it's a it's like it's it's like competently written. I think the lyrics are kind of stupid. Is it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like it's it's structurally it's sound, don't you think? I mean, it's not a terrible chord progression. I mean, it's a. I mean, I mean it, it, to me, like to feel like this negatively about it is is somewhat surprising, especially considering what else we have to pick from here. This is sort of like someone taking like a flyer on a player like Thon McCurr and like the second round and then you know and then you know Stan gunny's like i really don't get this pick <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh i mean there was a time on the radio when it was either this song or harvey danger's flagpole Sitta, and like give me harvey danger oh yeah absolutely so absolutely, yeah, yeah the, but the problem with the song is that it was just played into uh, the ground over and big victim of overplay it, this is evidenced by the fact that this song became so successful that it had its own accountant. It.
1: Uh, explain what you mean by that. There
0: was a, an, a single accountant that was dedicated to telling the revenue that this song cooked up for the record, the record company.
1: Is that because he like sold the publishing to this individual song or something?
0: Yeah, yeah. It was, and it was just, just licensed to everything and it was just everywhere. It was so popular. This, I think this
1: is, I can't name many specific instances of this, but this feels like the kind of song that if somebody wants their TV show to feel like 1996, they're going to needle drop this.
0: Yeah, so this is from Marcy Playground, self-titled album 1997. Do you remember this being as Marcy's Playground, apostrophe S? Yes. Is that a Mandela effect? No, I thought it was Marcy's Playground too yeah okay, but it's just single marcy playground uh it was released september fifteenth nineteen ninety seven It went number one u s alt airplay and number eight on the billboard hot one hundred uh this song is from the late eighties when John Wozniak was getting down with somebody in his dorm room and somebody else walked in and said the room smelled like sex and candy. And John Wozniak thought that was Weird and cool, and I have In my notes Quote, the dumbest fucking idiot End quote
1: I I thought your hostility toward John Wozniak In this song, like, it's kind of It, like, reminds me of, like, you know Like, where those those Michael Schur shows Like, like, Parks and Rec Or The Office, where there's always, like, a sort of Innocuous character that everyone just decides They really hate and is very mean to For reasons that are sort of obscure to the audience <laughs> But that's what makes it funny. Like, Marcy Playground is the Jerry of this
0: podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's he's the Starburns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I almost felt bad because Wojniak said that, quote, this was his first stab at coolness, end quote, <laughs> because he was bullied as a child. And it's like, you don't say. Really? <laughs> no
1: kidding, John. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, okay, well, that was my pick. Um, <laughs> do I have another one?
0: Uh, can can I can I mention real quick that it, John Wozniak's father is a developmental psychologist and he analyzed the video in Freudian terms and he decided that it's about a wet dream. Can you think of anything more horrifying than your father analyzing your video and be like, yeah, this has wet dream vibes to me? The the state should confiscate the children of
1: developmental <laughs> psychologists. This should not be <laughs> for, for for the children's sake and ours, like, like... <laughs> <laughs> oh. okay all right so um boy i guess with the next pick i will take oh boy what am i gonna do here you can cut this out because is... I-, I guess i'll take jumper by third by third eye blind i wish you would
0: step back from that lens my friend Okay, okay. Uh, why, why jumper? Uh, well,
1: I guess I have, I guess I have like middling fond memories for early, I guess the third, the first two Third Eye Blind albums.
0: Um, I think this is a. This can, can, can I be I, honest? I was shocked that Third Eye Blind released more than one album when I was.
1: Uh, yeah, I, I, I remember a kid that I was like. And I wouldn't say I was like friends with him, but like I played basketball on the same court as him. Like being a big fan of Third Eye Blind, and so like hearing maybe more of it than I would have otherwise. Uh, I mean, this is a this, this is a word that's been overused in this podcast, but I think this is a fairly competently written track. What's the asshole singer of this band called? What's his name?
0: Stephen Jenkins.
1: Yeah, I th- I think he like the most hated man in 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 rock music in the nineties, maybe Um,
0: everyone seems to really dislike this guy. Um, I I mean, he's uh, extremely up his own ass. Yeah. And for what? Because he wrote semi charm kind of life. Like that's it.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's a a thing trying to think of like uh, the least amount of the least amount of power to go to somebody's head. Um, I don't know. I mean, this is, this is where this becomes somewhat taxing because we're really just scraping from the bottom of the barrel now. Uh, And, the only thing that kind of recommends this song is that it's not some of the other songs on this list, but, um, (laughs) but you know, I'll just, just because like we're, we're trying to be vulnerable and honest here. I mean, it's a very catchy chorus. This is a, this is the chorus that if you're stuck in a car and it comes on, like you will find yourself humming along to it.
0: Yeah, I guess that's fair. Uh, as we stated, this is from the third eye blind self-titled album, 1997. The single was released August 4th, 1998 Crazy to see how long into the cycles these singles release, right? Like, what album these days is having singles that are spun off of it a year later, right? That's not the model anymore.
1: I mean, the model now is to just release, you know, to just put out a forty-song album and hope that it gets enough streams that you can say you've set a record or something.
0: Oh yeah, I mean, people just release singles. I mean, forget about albums, right? Can I can I say one more thing? Mm-hmm. I like what I like about this
1: song is that it has sort of like the way the pre-chorus goes into the chorus is very effective songwriting. Like the, the put the past away into I wish you would step down from that ledge. That is, that's good sort of like quiet, heavy rock songwriting there. I, I'm being a little bit too like shitty about all these songs because I have just bad memories of this time period of music, but just dispassionately stepping back. If I heard this song for the first time today, I think I would like it.
0: Yeah, I remember this being kind of like a little bit of a brush of breath of fresh air on the radio at the time. I liked Semi Charmed Life a lot more because I thought that was catchier. But at least, you know, these were songs that kind of like vaguely hinted at a power pop slash rock vibe. Uh, this went number two, US Mainstream Top 40, number five in the Billboard Hot 100. Uh, it is about, in quoting Stephen Jenkins here, a friend who's gay jumping off a bridge and killing themselves, end quote. Uh, did you get that meaning at the time from this song?
1: Uh, well, I got the, I mean, because it says, I wish you would step down from that ledge. I mean, I, I did sort of associate it with someone trying to talk somebody out of jumping off of a ledge, but I didn't, I didn't like associate it with any sort of like, you know, gay rights message or anything i guess
0: yeah uh yeah interesting in hindsight i think i i like the song a little bit more because of that origin than i did at the time where i just kind of like wrote it off as nonsense lyrics but um
1: well there is another part of this song that you put it out in the notes that i think is interesting it's the part where he says if you do not want to see me again i'd understand and he says the meaning behind that is sometimes when like someone helps you through a hard situation, it's hard to be around them after that. Yeah. And that's, that's some real shit.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, do we think Stephen Jenkins was the guy that people didn't want to be around? Uh, it's funny. It's like, no one wants to be around me because I've helped them so much. It's like, no, that's not <laughs> why. <I get> <laughs> uh, interestingly, and this makes a lot of sense to, in, 2022, Avril Lavigne cited this album as one of the biggest influences in our music career, and yeah, that that tracks. Yeah, do you hear it? I don't. I don't know if I hear it. I I definitely hear it. Oh, you
1: know what? It's funny. When I think I've complicated now. I think I can hear sort of like that. I, I hear the connection, like sort of calling out the chorus before you hit the chorus. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think I think this is the first song we've like talked ourselves into liking. I mean we started I think it's the first song that we've like ended up like more positive than negative
0: okay I I will take that yeah fair enough all
1: right all right so that's my two I just picked Marcy Playground Sex and Candy and Jumper by Third Eye Blind all right you are back on
0: the clock okay I am going to take in earnest Toe the Wet Sprocket, something's always wrong Okay, I am stopping the slide right here.
1: <laughs> this is gonna be like Aaron, this is like Aaron Rodgers falling all the way to the Packers. Like, <laughs> totally, what is gonna like have a chip on their shoulder for the rest of their career and like call me out after every midseason win they ever have. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Um, it's a good song. It's a good song.
0: It's it's again. I hate I hate that we're gonna say this word so much during this at least this first part of this podcast but it's confident and it, the deeper that we go into this draft i can't ignore that um did you think that they were a christian rock
1: band up until today because i did
0: no I,
1: no so when, when, when uh so i was in my uh, the, uh, a kid across the street from us he had an older brother and he was sort of the the conduit through which we learned about all new rock music. And so he's playing all I want by told the wet sprocket for me. And he's like, you know, they're a Christian band. And I was like, Oh, so I should be, I might be allowed to buy this. Um, and as is so often the case, sometimes an eight year old just lies to you and you believe it for the rest of your life.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, that's uh yeah, yeah. I mean, um, it, like one of their big singles hold her down has the effort in it. So, Oh wow. Yeah. It didn't it never cross my mind. No.
1: Yeah. we're not talking about, we're not, we're not talking about infidelity. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So this is from uh, Dulcenia, which is from 1994. Uh, the single was released around the same time uh, that the album came out. It peaked at number nine, US alt airplay and number 41 on the billboard hot 100. I actually don't remember this song that well. So Not I don't know a radio hit really. Yeah. So I don't know if total wet Rock was like losing favor with, uh, you know, uh, radio producers, at least in the Boston area. Like I remember hearing stuff from the previous album, 1991's fear, like a lot. I remember hearing all I want, hold her down, walk on the ocean. So and so forth, and like that was in pretty heavy rotation even to like the mid '90s. Yeah.
1: Well, this is like this is something that would happen in the '90s and just doesn't happen anymore. Which is bands would have life cycles. They would, they would peak with a either on their first or second album that would do really really well, and then the the label would because they were invested in them, they they put out another album, and because you know this was still a time of audience interest and taste sort of driving things. You know, bands would either like bands would tend to just like fall off a little bit. I mean even if they hadn't like necessarily creatively hit a total rut, you know, people recognize that every band had sort of a peak and a and a decline. And this is not to say toe the totally wet sprocket fell off or became a bad band or something. It was just natural for a band to sort of have like a three or four album life cycle. And then they would if they were seed, they they would maybe just start coming to their core audience a little bit more. But it feels like there's like 10 bands that we're stuck with forever that are always going to be huge no matter what and we're not going to have you know groups sort of rise and fall around that
0: yeah i think that's well observed uh glenn phillips the singer of toad wet sprocket said something always wrong is an amalgam of a bunch of relational observations todd had that music and the only line he was something has gone wrong. And I kind of lifted that and switched it as a person who struggles a lot with depression and negative ideation. For me, that's the state I'm usually swimming upstream against that feeling that something's wrong. It's usually based on true story, but it's almost never the whole story. End quote.
1: Yeah. uh, Solid band, solid, like, you know, a good example of a college radio oriented group enduring through grunge, which I think was kind of cool.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. This is definitely college rock to the max for sure. Just sensitive enough, but also, you know, had some rock muscle when they needed to tap into it. Uh, The name always got to bring this up. It's from a Monty Python sketch. Interestingly, not the first band named Toad the Wet Sprocket. Oh, really? (laughs) But probably the Uh, most famous of them. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, how many are there? I mean, there was one on... there's a new wave of British heavy metal band that was on metal for mothers, the first volume, and their big contribution was they did like a new wave of British heavy metal version of Eleanor Rigby.
1: Oh, I've got to hear this. Um, I, I swear to God, I thought you were going to say that there was a band called told to Wit's rocket on black market activities.
0: So. <laughs> 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 and that band became the red cord. That's right. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, anything Rip more Wake- you want to say on this one? Yeah, just Eric Idol's quote about Toad the Wet Sprocket always amuses me. Quote I once wrote a sketch about rock musicians, and I was trying to think of a name that would be so silly nobody would ever use it or dream it or dream it could ever be used. So I wrote the words Toad the Wet Sprocket. And a few years later, I was driving down the freeway in LA, and a song came on the radio, and the DJ said that was by Toad the Wet Sprocket, and I nearly drove off the freeway.
1: <laughs> Fantastic. Um, he has to know that would happen, by the way. Oh, yeah, surely,
0: right? Yeah, definitely. Am I back up? You back up. Okay, we're almost getting to the danger zone here, but I think this is the last... I think this is, like, the last song. There's, like, a couple more after this one, but this is, like, one of the last songs that I can kind of stomach having being in my roster. And so I'm choosing Better Than Ezra, Desperately Wanting.
1: Interesting pick. I think I was thinking about this, the buzz ballads today, and I sort of had this thought cross my mind that of all the groups that are on this compilation, I think better than Ezra would be one of the hardest ones to explain to someone today. Um, Because I think that they are the most like, firmly post-grunge group on here.
0: I disagree one hundred percent. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah.
1: All right. Hit me. Well, then, before I get
0: too deep into my theory, then, uh, why do you disagree? I don't hear them as post grunge at all. They're just a rock band to me.
1: Well, because grunge is such a nebulous term that, like, the bands that existed within that that genre all sound so different. I don't really think of grunge and post grunge as sounds so much as like markets that were being serviced. And so I think of better than Ezra as the band that was so clearly serving like the radio formats and the audiences that arose after grunge.
0: Uh, no, nah, I disagreed. I, I mean, they just feel like such a, a holdover from an eighties band to me. Yeah. And they were an eighties band, right?
1: I mean, they were one of those bands that endured through grunge.
0: Yeah. They were formed in 1988. I, uh, Baton Rouge, this is one of the few Southern bands that we have here, one of the few bands that are not from California. Yeah. And I mean, they're just, I would put them in the same bucket as like bands that were inspired by R.E.M. almost. Right, right. And so like Post Grunge to me is, Post Grunge to me is like a definitive sound, is Fans that desperately want to be Nirvana, but Ooh, they're desperately wanting to be Nirvana. Yes, yes, yes. But don't have are they are they running <laughs> the wet grass falling a step behind? <laughs> so- <laughs> but they obviously don't have the skills to do that. So the, the quintessential post grunge band to me is like Puddle Mud. Okay, so I I sort of I, I hear what
1: you're saying, and I don't label uh, better than Ezra as post grunge as like being derogatory in any way. I just um you know I, I I kinda remember this um listening to a conversation uh that included uh MTV VJ Matt Pinfield talking about, you know, in the weeks after Nevermind came out, radio stations across the country started changing their formats. And they're like, now we can play, you know, much more guitar oriented, hard rocking music. And I think of Better Than Ezra as a band that just benefited from that sort of change in mentality among radio programmers across the country. I don't, it's not to say that like, I mean, so when I label them post-grunge, I don't mean to like diminish them and put them in the same category as Puddle of Mud and Three Doors Down. I really dislike those bands and I don't have that kind of negative feeling about Better Than Ezra. I just, I guess I'm more thinking of them as like a band that existed at such a unique moment and serve such a unique audience that doesn't really exist anymore. And because they did so well and were so like, there's people out there whose favorite band is better than Ezra, um, which I think is another sort of part of this. that might be hard to explain to somebody like this was a big band.
0: Yeah. 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 I don't, yeah. It's kind of, I kind of put them in the same continuum as like blind melon. Interesting. Interesting. They come up elsewhere
1: uh, in the discussion um for me uh yeah all right was i'm kind of hijacking your pick here what is your theory of better than Ezra? B- before i sort of like because i sort of bombed you with mine
0: yeah i mean i think they're just like for a while you could just be like a good competent rock band and still hit the radio yeah yeah yeah, yeah. totally so from like you know from like 1960 through to you know september 11th 2001 really yeah these bands would always just come like, come around and surface and just be a good, competent rock band that didn't really adhere to any of the prevailing trends and that's kind of where I hear Better Than Ezra where maybe a song like good with a slightly crunchier guitar maybe signals that it's gonna be able to be played alongside you know, contemporaneous U2 but I never really heard Better Than Ezra fitting into like any of the prevailing trends at the time.
1: Yeah. How how stoked do you think you know like the a and r was when he saw Kevin Griffin. I was like, holy shit, like <laughs> like this guy is fucking tall, he looks like he could be on e r They sound like nirvana, but moms could listen to it It must have just been like a dream come true when when then a A&R got are gonna hold of this band
0: yeah i I think the the boon for them is that they could be marketed as edgy, but I nothing about them sounds edgy to me right exactly Where it's it's like it's like a false edginess is put on by the, the record industry where this band is just like a straight rock band. And I should say, you know, this is from friction baby, which came out in 1996. The single was released December 3rd, 1996. It peaked at number 10 U S mainstream rock and number 48 on the billboard hot 100. And this band is like new Orleans royalty. Really? Where, you know, like a, uh, like many fresh knows who these guys are.
1: God, I would give anything to see those people in conversation.
0: Yeah, like that's how embedded they are with like in the, the New Orleans scene. Like they, everyone just kind of like knows who they are. They they're lifers, and there's so few rock bands that come out of New Orleans that you know it's kind of this uh, interesting little quirk in the matrix that happened. And of course, I'd be remiss to say that you know Joan Wasser, aka Jonas, as Police plays violin on this album. I think that's cool.
1: So, yeah, I I gotta. I mean, this is this is not a, a certainly not like one of my favorite bands, but I have like the stories of bands like this make me really happy, you know. And it's sort of the the most interesting part of the whole grunge phenomenon is that it did create a lane for just good rock and roll bands, and I would classify better than Ezra as you know falling into that category. Mm-hmm. All right, so we're about to hit our 16th pick here. Uh, Can I propose to you that we uh, make this a two-parter and uh, we make this a final pick of the first round? Yeah, 100%. Let's do it. All right, so with the final pick in the first round. I am going to select, I think, the most um, ill-fitting of the compilation here. I'm going to take, what do I have to do by stabbing westward?
0: Whoa, okay, okay. Uh,
1: it's a, it's a, I think you mentioned earlier, like you're getting to the part of the list now where you're just trying to pick stuff that you wouldn't be embarrassed to have, uh, among your selections. And I think that's how I feel about this. I have no fucking idea <laughs> why this song would be put on something called Buzz Ballads, though. Is this the heaviest song that's on this compilation? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that uh doll parts might get a little bit more intense because I, I I sort of always have like this feeling that dynamics is important in establishing heaviness, um, but yeah this is this is probably v1,
0: yeah, I guess um, I should rephrase. Is this the sonically heaviest?
1: Yeah, yeah, probably. Um, I'm curious what do you remember about like this moment where a band like stabbing Westward could be on the radio?
0: Uh, these were all of the also-rans that came after Nine Inch Nails' Downward Spiral blew up. Yeah. And to, I guess, I guess a lesser extent, Pretty Hate Machine blew up. That really kind of put these bands back in vogue. You know, like, Ministry does the the trailblazing work. Nine Inch Nails c- comes in and makes it reasonably palatable to the mainstream. And then all these other bands, such as Stabbing Westward, Gravity Kills, God Lives Underwater. Yeah reap the
1: benefits of that. Do you have a favorite song of that sort of post Nine Inch Nails industrial movement? Uh,
0: I mean, if we're talking like post-downward spiral, the best industrial song is Nine Inch Nails' Perfect Drug by a mile.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um I have a... You mentioned God lives underwater. I have a soft spot for their their single All Wrong. I don't know if you remember that. that All radio. Wrong is
0: interesting because it's the first song that... Was produced entirely on an Apple computer.
1: And that that is interesting. Uh, to, it's funny because like when I was a just you know thinking of God lives underwater. Like when I was younger, I, I mean that song probably came out when I was like ten or eleven. Like you don't really think of like coherent musical movements yet. You just sort of like listen to music for what it is. Um, so I didn't necessarily like understand that stabbing westward and God lives underwater only got to exist because of nine inch nails. Um, but it, that was a, that was an interesting moment that definitely came and went. I think another reason why those bands had, a, a you know, a, a good, uh, a moderate level of commercial success is that that kind of music is very conducive to music videos. And this was sort of the era where like the, the video and the song would be packaged together and, and served to the consumer as a, as a unit. Um, and that's less of a thing now. So, um, you know, sort of the death of the music video might've also done in this uh, 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 certain genres might've died alongside of the, uh, the music video, at least commercially.
0: Yeah. I think there, this is also just like such a period specific idea of what modernity is. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's like very hackers.
1: Mm-hmm. 100%. Yeah, let's, let's talk about, so, I mean, we, we talked about the sort of like post-industrial movement or whatever, but what do you, what was the history of stabbing westward here
0: uh stabbing westward is a band that comes out of illinois from macomb illinois they were, had been around forever they formed in 1985 i think of them more as an la band which i think they come out to la far later but they just kind of had that la vibe to them and uh, this album, Wither, Blister, Burn, and Peel, which came out in 1996, uh, What Do I Have to Do? The single also came out around the same time to uh, sell the album, and it definitely did. I mean, it almost went platinum, which is kind of crazy to think about in retrospect. This song peaked at number seven on the U.S. mainstream rock chart. Chris Rawls says, quote, it's a song of frustration, just a willingness to do anything to try and make somebody love you again after they've fallen out of love with you, and I can... And I think I can tell you with a great certainty that there's nothing you can do. I think Lyle Lovett said it best. Like Lyle Lovett quote from Stabbing Westward Guy said it best in a song she's already made of her mind and there's nothing you can do to change that, end quote. Um, it, do you like any other Stabbing Westward songs? I couldn't. I, uh, I'm embarrassed to say that.
1: Without Googling quickly, I couldn't name one.
0: Okay. So they, have, uh, they put out a self-titled album in 2001 that everyone hates. But the lead single from that, So Far Away, I think is so good. Okay. All right. I'll go check it out. Yeah. It's such a good alternative rock song. It has such a great chorus.
1: All right. You're going to listen to Hell by The Squirrel and The Zippers, and I'm going to listen to So Far Away by Stabbing
0: Westward. Yeah. What what, what a trade-off. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, I think what's interesting is that we just discussed Better Than Ezra, and now we're talking about Stabbing Westward. And I think what that sort of illuminates is that so often people think, you know, a band will get big and then a bunch of bands will come up and like rip them off. But the reality is, is what what really happens is that there's a bunch of bands already making a certain type of music. They're all pulling from the same influence. One of them gets big and then the rest of the bands are allowed to continue existing because of that. You know, Nine Inch Nails gets big. And so as a result, Stabbing Westward is allowed to like have a little bit of a run in the wake of that. Same thing with Nirvana and Better Than Ezra. But like, it would not be fair to say that Stabbing Westward was a ripoff of Nine Inch Nails. They were around, they were contemporaries, same as Better Than Ezra and Nirvana. They were contemporary bands.
0: Yep. Yep. I mean, it's like the candle box conundrum, right? Right. If, right. if if there's no grunge explosion, then Candlebox is like some rare rock record that people bring up and they're like, man, this was so good. And they ch- try to share it with you like Jack and Dino's Earthworm or something.
1: Right. But, you know, 100 years from now, all of the the, the, the critical weight that was put on certain albums and denied others is going to totally fall away. And the way people talk about this stuff is going to seem totally, you know, it will seem it would seem totally foreign to us.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So that is the that is the sixteenth pick, uh which means we are halfway through, which seems like a good time to stop and uh and kind of head back to our draft rooms, figure out where we're at, uh maybe fire a few of our scouts and promote a few others. I think a front office shakeup is in order on, on for both teams here. Uh <laughs>
0: Was, yeah, I'm was, thinking I'm thinking of me drafting Toad to Wet Sprocket, something's always wrong, and it being like the 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 live draft room picture when the Pelicans drafted Zion. <laughs> and it's like how joyful they looked and like how depressing that looks now, like five years yeah. later. Yeah.
1: Yeah, well, I, I have a feeling that uh, Toad to Wet Sprocket is not going to have the kind of uh, interpersonal drama in their lives that Zion has of last years. But you never know. They're not a Christian <laughs> rock band after all. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that <laughs> the lesson there is uh, don't introduce him to beignets. The lesson here is never believe an eight-year-old when they tell you anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, love it. All right. That is it for us. Our theme song is Welcome by New Sweet Breath. You can find that banger on its 1996 full-length demolition theater. You can find more of Greg Markle's amazing music at gregmarklemusic.com. You can subscribe to Runout Grooves on your podcatcher of choice. Leave us a rating and review, please. If you like us, share us around. If you'd like to drop us a line, you can email us at runoutgroovespodgmail.com. At Dave Monseca, this is Wolf Rambats, signing off. Goodbye. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>